Welcome back to Pick Up the Phone. Today we have a caller on the line. Who are we speaking with? Hi everyone, this is Awad. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Camelia. I don't know if you want to talk about how we know each other or like any of our stories from tech or anything. Yeah, I don't know when you started like creeping on me and like you're just all over my life after that. So maybe you can tell how that started. Is that how you describe me to people? I'm like on my way to like have dinner with you guys. You're like, she's just, she shows up. <laughs> I cannot get rid of her. I don't know how she finds me, man. (laughs) We had like similar student advocacy sorts of roles at our university, but it was like COVID year. So we were only on Zoom, but I don't know if you remember this. I slid in your DFs about the New York Times 1619 project. I told you that's how it started. I told you how that's how it started. Thank you for referring. I told you, like, you started creeping on me, and then I just couldn't get rid of you. I don't think that counts as creeping. It wasn't a DM slide like a DM slide. Yeah, sure. Can you imagine? I'm like, I saw you on Zoom. (laughs) Actually, that's happened to me. That's so funny. No way. You posted something about, like, having a copy of the New York Times 1619 Mm -hmm. Project, and I, like, slid in your DMs and was like, that's so cool. Not creepy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um... And then you were like, I'll give you one. And we did not like know each other. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? That's so funny. Now I remember actually, yeah, the first time we met, I like came in and handed you this big envelope. Wait, wait, like, wait, wait. We're getting to that. <laughs> so I'm like, what do you mean you're going to give me one? And you're like, I have an extra. And I'm like, you don't know me. Why would you give me your one extra? And you were like, I don't know. What else am I going to do with it? You can have it. And I was like, Okay. And then we, like, met up with some of the other, like, people that we knew, and we all, like, met up for lunch or something, and you showed up with just, like, a file folder. <laughs> and But I had forgotten, because it had been enough time that I forgot what it was, and you didn't say what it was. You, like, made some joke, like, you walked up and you were like, here's your background check, or, like, something like that. <laughs> that sounds like something I'd say. Like, I was like, who is this dude, and why did he just give me an envelope of files? This is Camelia. Please pick up the phone. People find out that I'm that I work in tech and then they're just like, engineering, fix this toilet. Like it doesn't matter what it is. People are just like, do this thing. Yeah. My mom my mom called me like sometime two weeks ago because one of her friend's sons who's in high school was struggling with like an organic chemistry assignment or something. It's like, yeah, my son is like at MIT he can he knows things so he can help you out I'm like no mom that's not how it works are you good at chem I liked I'm not sure what you guys called it here but like qualitative chem so the one that had like like all the molar reactions and stuff like the chem that had math that one I like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay the chem that had like stuff that you needed to memorize like you know what color is this product and like the structure of like organic chemistry whatever you like math but called. not drawing oh, I hate drawing I hate drawing with things that like have structure. You know, generally I'm not good at structure. Let's just put it that way. I'm very biased and I'll say like science and engineering inherently makes sense. Like to you, like math and physics and stuff. I mean, like that's how the world operates. The world definitely operates at some function on arts and humanities too. But like those are not not things that you can feel or quantify, which is why it's, it takes a lot more to comprehend them in the schools of thought and them and all that. I like the combo of the two when people have. Um... Like whole fields of study about formulas for how to predict like how people are going to act or should be the next thing you should do. 
See, but that's that's what economists do. Like, I have a bunch of friends who are economists. I tell them they have the best jobs in the world. Like, mm-hmm. economists are it because economists they really think that they have shit together, and they have like all those like really nice formulas about how the world should operate, like in theory and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, and the economic crisis every couple of years, and they'll be like, "Oops, we never saw that coming. We didn't see this before, but we'll learn from it." And they keep their jobs. Like, if you screw up in any other profession as much as economists screw up, like you'd be crucified. To the kids listening, don't do drugs and study economics. I don't know what I would do if kids started listening to my podcast. You don't think there's a bunch of kids like doesn't Spotify show you any like age statistics or anything? Yeah, it's mostly like our age group and then old men. Wow. So which which age group am I? Somehow both. <laughs> okay, fair answer. So you're not an economist. What do you do? Um, so this is a question that I struggle to answer. So I did my um, undergraduate in civil engineering. So I studied to build things. That's that's what I really wanted to do. Like applying to college, I thought that well, I want to do engineering because I want to build things. Mm-hmm. And then within engineering, I thought I wanted to do civil engineering because like in your face, like you build a bridge and you tell everyone I did that. So I wanted that kind of like braggy aspect of it. You know, you can't miss it. <laughs> I don't think this is a shocker to you. You're smiling, but it's not a shocker. Um, so yes, I did my undergrad. That's in Sudan, where I'm from. It was a five-year honors program that I did and um, worked for two years in kind of structural design and project management mostly about just like big building projects so multi-story buildings and just like everyday buildings that you see in you know in the streets in the big cities i wanted to study more about transportation because i really liked it i just thought it's like the combination of building things but building things that help people move around is like something that i thought i was quite fascinated by Mm -hmm. so which is why i moved to the states i joined the um, program at virginia tech the program is called transportation infrastructure and systems engineering for the most part i thought i thought i wanted to do more of like the structural side of things like how mm-hmm. do i build transportation infrastructure that's what i came to america to learn but then i realized there's this whole system side of it which is basically about optimizing things that go on top so how traffic you know is planned to go across cities and how signals are timed and how to use artificial intelligence to make this whole thing smarter from autonomous vehicles to smart infrastructure and all of that that's what I did my grad school, master's and PhD on, more of the system side, um, which which I thought is pretty cool too. So it's, it's kind of just a more efficient way of dealing with the infrastructure that you have, as opposed to just assuming that all your problems are going to be fixed by building more roads. Yeah. What is the difference between more like urban planning and actual transportation engineering, or can they kind of be the same? I mean, that's that's a good question to ask. I don't think I have the right answer to it because urban planners like think about a lot more than just like the viability of something financially and structurally. You know, they think about communities, they think about um, the history of a place and how to preserve it. And they think about like the future, um, you know, idea of what a city or what not necessarily a city of like what a place should look like because it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be a city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think urban planners generally tend to say engineers are linear thinkers, which I think is like the best way to put it. Uh, because we really think about, okay, what do we want to do? We want to get more people through? Two-way solution. Mm-hmm. It's either you build more infrastructure or you optimize your systems to do it better. And then like your tree branches and you end up with something. So it's like the engineering thinking is like very systematic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, urban planners think about a lot more. So it's it's quite interesting. I'm technically working with a lot more urban planners here than I ever did. Because the lab that I work with is hosted in civil engineering and urban studies and planning. Mm-hmm. So this is where I started really encountering this type of thinking. It's like, well, it's not just like 
the math that should make sense for you to build something or plan something. But there's all those like human aspects of things that engineers are like systemically taught to dismiss mm-hmm. that urban planners think about. I think transportation too is like honestly really powerful for communities. Oh yeah, 100%. It's important to have that be part of the conversation for engineers because like public transit or even like road availability access, stuff like that is like, I don't know, totally life-changing. Especially like here, like in DC, I don't have a car. I fully just rely on public transit. So it's like, I'm like a clear example of I need it to work well and I need to be able to like get where I'm going and like hopefully get there quickly. And like sometimes it works great and sometimes it could be better. How's it it working for you right now? Yeah, side note, Awad works uh, with WMATA, as you call it, DC's public transit organization. So um, if you could pass this along formally to Bowser this whole podcast this is for her a more independent entity but okay you can pass it to bowser okay well that kills my vision of you like sitting around (laughs) in the mayor's office like which stop should we add yeah no that's not that's not what we do on day to day i'm sorry i think dc has really good public transit though honestly for the most part there's way too much going on to really build new metro lines or new metro stations they've added a few in virginia or maryland where there's more space but for the most part it's like in dc there's we're not getting new metro stops but they do a really good job of um having the bus routes fill in a lot of the gaps between um between where the metro goes so you can almost get from anywhere to anywhere without having to switch to like you you'll might have to switch but you don't only have to switch so many times which is exactly how that should work like yesterday i was going from work to like meet my friend somewhere and it was like two completely different neighborhoods and I was like oh there's a bus right near here that will take me directly from one to the other one and it was really nice and then the bus got stopped because there were a bunch of cops and there was a huge blockade and then I had to get out on the road and just walk so it was nice until it wasn't (laughs) yeah yeah buses I mean like see that's the problem right You, you start seeing it the systems are designed very well um that's why mostly at least for the most part um you know metro rails and trains run a lot better than buses because buses have to interact with all those different constituents of the roadway right what do you do day to day it honestly depends on the day um so for the most part like what i was doing before starting to work here at transit lab was a lot more like on the artificial intelligence side so i did a lot of work on like machine perception you know and computer vision and how that a helps autonomous vehicles see things better so that your tesla doesn't like run you you know to the curb like they do um, or that, you know, smart infrastructure can actually see how vehicles and people are moving in the city and detect where it's like, where there's problems, right? Because the way that you evaluate safety is through crashes and accidents and injuries and fatalities that happen, which is kind of absurd because then you, you really miss the point. It already happened, right? Mm-hmm. There's a really big push in using, um, you know, machine perception and other technologies for things like identifying hotspots of potential crashes or conflicts and mitigating them proactively um, because it's something that people for some reason I don't know like people just decided to grow numb to it it's I think like there's an average about 40,000 traffic fatalities in America every year mm-hmm. which is insane I mean if you put it into numbers like in the airline industry that would be like a mid-range jetliner basically falling off the sky every day right and the world would go crazy if that was the case yeah right but that's happening on the streets every day and people don't bat an eye it's like well this is just like you know civil casualties that will take for getting people on the road and whatever. Well, the way that people talk about autonomous vehicles too is so different than the way that they talk about normal car accidents. Like you said, car accidents happen all the time. Every single person I know has been in a car crash. 
in some way. But then you'll be like, oh no, the Tesla, can you believe what that vehicle did? I don't trust this technology, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, oh, so it's okay if like someone else kills you. That's, that's very true. But it's not okay if like your Tesla crashes, which like I don't want either to happen. But it's like the odds of you just crashing are pretty high on their own. But you're like, it feels different if I'm in control of it. And it's like, it's really not different. It's like, why would you think that your senses and your reaction time would be better than like the best technology? No, that's 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 very true. Right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bias is that, well, presumably the technology is supposed to be better than any human. But at the end of the day, it interacts with humans. And it was made yeah. by humans. So if you just took the human from being behind the wheel, that doesn't mean the human wasn't involved mm-hmm. in the whole process, right? If the road was all autonomous vehicles, it would be fine because they would all be able to communicate with each other. But because it's Mm -hmm. an autonomous vehicle and then like us idiots that we are driving around and like making split second decisions, then it has to account for way more than it normally would, which is all of this irrational behavior. Exactly. And if you think about it, when do crashes happen, intersections or when people are like merging in and out of highways and For all those, you have some mechanisms, right? You have your blinkers that people in this country, I come to learn, tend to think of as optional. Do people not do that other places? I mean, honestly, they're worse here. People tend not to do it in many places. Like, I think Americans just think of it as like, well, yeah, it'll be nice of me if I do it, but do I really have to? Um, But at the end of the day, you have all those things, you know, there's like your blinkers or like the stop signs or the traffic signals. Their main function is to communicate between you and a human that you have no line of communication with who has the right of way. Mm -hmm. Right. And and the main promise of autonomous vehicles and it's people in the industry mostly refer to them as autonomous and connected vehicles because autonomous is cool, but the connectivity part is really what's needed. Right. So, you know, your vehicle on the right side tells the vehicle that's going straight that, hey, I'm coming in this many seconds. So slow down, optimize the trajectory or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of communication that we have currently those kinds of infrastructure to communicate it and autonomous and connected vehicles just do that on the fly Mm -hmm. so yes if everything is autonomous and connected then in theory you can have absolutely no one dying on the road outside mechanical failures like within the components of the vehicles themselves Mm -hmm. um but yeah as long as they're always going to be interacting with humans then yeah that's that's always going to be an issue what was your driving test like did you have to parallel park it was the worst it was the worst so you don't have to parallel park it's like it's so intimidating because the driving test in sudan is it's a three-part the first part is very similar to the one here. So you call it like the scientist, right? You go and you get tested at all those road signs on a computer mm-hmm. and, and you're good, you know? So that's that's easy peasy. The second part is the most intimidating part. And it's, I don't know, like it would translate almost like the backup. I don't know how it translates, to be honest. Like, But that's like the name Al-Khalf is like literally translates to like just going backwards. Oh. And, and it's this very, it's, I don't know when in, I have been driving for quite a bit now. And I do not think I've ever done this maneuver anywhere in my life. No, never. <laughs> never done it anywhere Is in it life. backup parking or you just drive backwards down the road? No, so you drive. No, it's backup parking, but it's a very weird backup, right? So you go to this perfect L. Mostly it's you go straight, you turn left, you're there, right? That's easy peasy. Mm-hmm. But now you have to back up in one go straight into this L, which is like the exact width of the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who does that? My mom. My mom loves a back-in parking spot. <laughs> No, but see, like, you're not even backing into a parking spot. Like, you're not parallel parking. You're you're backing up in an L shape. Like No, that's what backing into a parking that? spot is, though. 
Because when would you ever be able to back straight into a spot? Yeah, but you then you don't like when you're backing up into a parking spot, you're not like backing up in a perfect L shape. You're coming a little bit diagonally. That's how you do it. Oh, like you ha- like it had to be like straight lines. Yes, it had to be like a perfect L. Like it's a very weird thing that you never ha- and you had to do it. That's once, so-, so weird. Yeah, nobody exactly. does that when they drive. Exactly. You're welcome. Okay, it took me a while to get there, but now I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's just dumb. And the thing is, you have to do it in one go. Oh my god. So if you're like backing up and you need to adjust, now you're screwed. Like, okay, come in two weeks. And then the third part is just basically like a road test. And did you get it on your first try, the L parking? Yes, I did. I'm impressed. It's quite impressive, I know. One of, one of many things, probably the most impressive thing I've done, to be honest. And it's actually an event. You go there, so like the testing center is there. Mm-hmm. But there's just people, like, if there's someone who doesn't have anything or they just want to get their coffee. Coffee is a very communal thing. Like, people do it, you know, like, little kiosks or, like, under trees or whatever. There's people who make coffee. Mm-hmm. So people literally just sit, like, there would be a good amount of audience watching. this because It's an event <laughs> no. for everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's very stressful. Oh, that is so stressful. Yeah. My test wasn't hard, like the driving, but I had such a crazy driving instructor. Crazy enough that I'm afraid she's going to somehow find this. Oh my god. I went to this driving school in my hometown that was owned by this couple. They had lived in New York and moved down to Virginia and then opened up the driving school. And they loved me. Like They were notoriously really scary and intense, but they loved me because their family like came to the US around the same time that my family did and also was in similar areas of New York. And so they like, did you guys have this where it's like, for us, it was like, there would be two or three of us who were students in the car with the instructor, and we would all trade out. So for like, they would just like, double us up for a lesson. So like, you would drive for a little and then you would sit in the backseat while someone else drove. No, see, this is one of the things that we have better than you guys. It's like, we still have to get like a certain number of hours before we get the test. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you think that you already know how to drive well from outside, you can just pay up the driving instructor. They'll give you a certificate and it works. So that's what I did. Yeah, like we have to do this with an instructor on top of doing hours, like with your parents or your siblings or whoever. So you'd have to like drive around with this lady and then you'd there would also be just other people there with you who would be doing their lesson at the same time. And so the entire time that I would be in the driver's seat, she would just, or even when other people were driving, she would just spend the whole time like talking to me about like the immigrants experience in America, like an hour every week. And everyone else in the car was like, what the fuck? And then the driving test itself, like there's no one else there for that. You know, just me and this lady. She spent the entire time telling me about everyone she knew personally that died in 9-11. This is like such a trauma. Like this might be actually more traumatizing than that L backup thing I was talking about. You win. You win Struggle Olympics. <laughs> I was like shaking the whole time. She was like, you didn't slow down fast enough. I was like, your friend is dead. <laughs> it was oh so God. scary. Does he like, you have this issue with your driving instructor? I really want to go skydiving. And that's one of the things that I never did skydiving. It's like, you have to be attached to this human being that you should actually believe. Oh, you're not. I thought you meant because of 9-11, you're afraid of falling. No, no, no. You're afraid of having to talk to someone who's annoying. Not even, not even talk to somebody. But if someone's like, has all that amount of like, I don't know, whatever things are going in their life. You know, 9-11 was a long time, mm-hmm. you know, after... Um, before you, you started your, your, your driving school. If someone's really traumatized by whatever, for that, you you really just needed that person approval to pass or fail the driving test. Mm-hmm. 
But I'll go skydiving. I need that person to actually get me to the fucking ground, right? And I don't know what the heck is going on in their head. If they start telling me about shit going on in their life when we're up there, and they're just not pulling the parachute, like, that's a literal fear that I have. I don't... That is so specific. You're, like, barreling down to the ground, and they're like, so I'm really upset. She took everything. I'm know? just going through a bad time right now. BRB skydiving. I, I need to find something you know, that doesn't involve another human being attached and being responsible for your life. Honestly, the the homelessness thing is definitely one thing that really struck me when I moved to America because, I mean, we do have homeless people. Like, there are homeless people back home, but it's, like, it's very, very few just because, like, social support systems, I mean, governments are shit. But social support systems, like, within the communities exist. Like, you have, like, ridiculously strong ties with, like, your family and your family's family, your family's family's family that people just would not want to see you end up in the streets. But what happens if you don't have a family? That's that's exactly. Like, that's very rare because your family is not just your parents and your siblings. Your family is your, like, fifth cousins, you know? Yeah. So, like, the odds of you not having family are, like, ridiculously miniature. That's why... It's like very, very few people, although like the majority of the population are really poor, but it's very few people who are um, homeless. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of people that their family may not be in a situation to be able to help them because there's so many other like social infrastructure things that are missing in the U.S. So it's like if you can barely afford to keep your house and feed your kids, it's like, oh, then you're going to have more people living there. and. But see, this is, I mean, to take things back into like transportation and public transit, this is one of the issues when when people think about public transit and funding public transit, because where do you have public transit in America? Usually in big cities, like it's not in the suburbs. Right. Um, that doesn't exist. Um, it, it's in the cities. And what do you have in cities? You have a lot more homeless people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes this kind of like, you know, nested problem of, you want to improve public transportation in some places you want to make it actually good and accessible and free. But at the same time, you have people that are not sheltered um, mm-hmm. and that public transportation becomes their only shelter. Um, so it creates this cycle of, you know, people who actually don't want to fund it because they think that the more public transportation spaces you have, the more places it is for people who don't have homes to, to resort to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of it, it becomes that, well, the people who use public transportation might have a negative interaction with someone that is, you know, homeless and using that space. Um, and that, that, that generates a negative sentiment about public transportation itself. Right. And then public transportation is just like in the middle. It's like, well, we really can't do the social work because this is a part of the service right. that, that constitutes social work, but like public transport operators and people who work in it should not be expected to be doing more social work duties than carrying people from point A to point B, which they signed up for. Right? Absolutely. Or having to be enforcers of things, like having to kick people off and yeah. handle that as sort of, because it's, it's like the problem just keeps getting shoved from place to place because it's a problem that should be addressed with like housing infrastructure and minimum wage and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. But and then it's, it's you just have the public transportation that is just facing it and, you know that's that's where the issue starts really yeah i mean they do it all over there's all sorts of stuff like um anti-homeless infrastructure in parks and stuff like that other public places and it's like are you spending all of our city's time and money and resources on trying to make it so that people can't sleep on benches 
Like, the park is not the problem. Yeah. It's like, you know, people not having enough affordable places to live that are the problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the problem is those people don't have a voice, right? And I think that's that's where the responsibility of others who have, like, more than a single function brand cell comes into play about raising awareness about those situations. Um, I mean, maybe some people choose, like, to jump over fare gates and not pay for public transportation, but someone who cannot pay a small amount of money to get on public transportation probably does not have it. Mm-hmm. So... It's not something definitely that should be okay or accepted, but it should not be criminalized either. It has some root causes that people are just like, you know, just turning the blind eye to and Mm -hmm. expecting people to just suddenly only come to the, you know, metro station if they want to get into the metro. And if they come in, they should pay for it, which is ideal if everyone had a place to live Mm -hmm. and had money to pay for the public transportation. Uh, So it's not a public transportation problem. It's like, again, like you said, it's all those root causes from affordable housing, particularly in those cities where this is a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Jobs that actually pay people decently and all that. On a slightly lighter note, though, I was really surprised at how many people do jump over um, the fare gates in D.C. Because the first city that I ever grew up going to was New York City. And in New York, if you... Like, you can't jump the turnstiles. Like, they... I mean, people do it, but, like, it's a huge deal. Like, they'll, like, come after you if you do it. It's very intense. And they've definitely, like, arrested people, like, beat people crazy stuff for just, like, jumping over the turnstiles. But in D.C., friggin' nobody pays. It's crazy. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the numbers on that, but the numbers are actually, yep, not good. I heard the city was considering offering free incentive and like other stuff because it's like so high (laughs) that people just don't pay but what i think is funny is that you can actually see it change based on fare station um no not fare station metro station i don't know why i said it like that um um, like some metro stations like all the tourist ones and all of the like political you know important building related ones everybody pays everywhere where people live nobody pays Like, I feel like a schmuck because I pay. And I'm like, is this stupid of me? When I first moved to D.C., one of the first times I was, like, taking the metro and going somewhere, uh, my card just, I don't know, there was some error and it just wouldn't let me out when I got where I was going. And so then I went to the machine where you can add exit there. And it, like, yelled at me there and was like, you can't add exit there. So then I went back, tried to get out, wouldn't let me out. Now this thing is dinging. It's like, see station manager. I go over. There's no station manager. So I'm like, okay, I guess I just have to jump it. And like I said, I hadn't spent enough time in, in like DC's neighborhoods to know that like everybody just hops it and you're fine. So all I can think of is New York and I'm like waiting for someone to come out of nowhere and be like, <laughs> gotcha, <laughs> like just cart me off to jail for hopping this on like my second day in DC. Yeah. So what happened to me is I then obviously like I hopped it because I had to get out. But then as soon as I hopped over the gate, this mom and her adult son were like just coming up behind me and she was like see like she had been like talking him into jumping over it and she was like see look at that girl that girl knows what's up be like her and it was so funny (laughs) do you feel like you scored a major point for feminism there (laughs) no it's just such a like just the way that moms have mom power even over their children as adults and like this mom talking to her grown son was so funny because it was just like right back to being a toddler. She was like, why can't you be more like that? And he was like, oh, that's so funny. It's amazing. I love old ladies. They're all so cool. Yeah, I would sound like a creep if I said something like that. True. 
Okay, so I want your thoughts on what you think are the best and worst public transit systems that you've been on. The best and worst? I mean, Singapore is amazing. Really? Yeah, Singapore is just like nuts. Okay, why? Like trains every like half a second. The city in itself is like entirely very clean. Public mm-hmm. transportation is one of them. So you don't feel like it's a punishment for you to go and take public transportation. But like overall, like super fast, super reliable. It's amazing. I'm going to Madrid next week. So maybe I'll have you something are? to compare in Europe. Yep. In America, I definitely thought that DC pre-COVID was amazing. Yeah. I hated Maybe hated a strong word. Maybe you want to edit this out. But I strongly dislike New York generally. That's so. I'm. You don't. You don't like the subway. No, and the similar reason that Boston. Like their problem is just that. I mean, people who run those systems, like incredible people who are trying like to do the best with the resources that they have. Mm-hmm. But Boston and 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 you know um, New York specifically, really old systems, and they serve like a lot of people, and you can't just like start it over. I think that's why DC beats. I mean, Chicago is also amazing. Chicago is like a little bit more modern, still like massive. I think it's like the second largest after New York and it's pretty good too. Um, Pre-COVID also. I mean, like all those systems took a hit. DC is like the nicest just because of like the big stations, better lighting. You don't feel like you're walking in the dungeons, you know, to catch your trains. So this is all, this is all good because you want public transportation to be welcoming. Um, buses go on the streets. They look like the city, whatever part of the city they are. They're stuck in the same traffic. So, I feel like it's really hard to compare like bus systems, but I'm just going like comparing the rail systems here. Yeah. Now, all of them collectively, the issue that they have now is that they took like a massive hit with COVID, right? Because all mm-hmm. those systems throughout the years were just designed to like carry people in the morning from like where they live, bring them into the center of the city, like for work, and then like they spread back out in the evening. Like that's literally how all those systems and networks were designed, particularly in DC, where this is like the biggest problem now is that. You have like 30% of people who are not working from their office anymore. And even those who are working from the office, they're not working the five days a week that you build your system to work around, right? Maybe people take the metro in other ways. I don't know. Has it bounced back in any other ways? Yes, that's true. But I mean, like particularly for DC, if you look at DC, for example, um, you pay a lot more when you take it during peak hours. Oh, yeah, that's true. You're not getting that. Yeah. Exactly. And other than you're not getting that, like in, you know, it used to be if you're taking the red line in DC before COVID, you'll go and there's literally one every two or three minutes. Ugh. Just because there is a lot. I was taking of the people. red line at rush hour the other morning. Also, DC's red line is like notoriously the worst. Like people hate the red line, mostly because it goes a lot of like places that people need to go during rush hours. So it's yeah, exactly. always running late. And yeah, the most I was hated on... line in any city is usually the best line. It's just that it's the one that more people you use. You think the red line is the best line? The red line is the one that is at least most available. It's like no. always there. I am loyal to my green line. I feel like green and yellow line, I just don't know where they start and where they end. So, you know, all love, no hate for any of them. But red wow. line, red, red this line is, is the your MVP. job and you don't even know where the green and yellow lines go? Red line is the MVP. Oh my God, that's such a tourist thing of you to say. Everyone hates the red line. <laughs> So anyway, I was taking the red line the other morning, and it was the most crowded train I've been on since the pandemic. There were so many people, people had to stay back on the platform. But I elbowed my way in, and then I got back to the... It feels like a very like throwback experience to be like wall-to-wall people. Yeah. And I didn't miss it, but you know, I guess it's kind of back. I think I was staying in Virginia, like one of the summers that I was interning in D.C., and it was the 4th of July, and I was, I think, taking a train back, one of 
orange or silver um, back to Virginia after like the, the fireworks show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's like the trains are coming in just packed. There is no room. And like when the car approaches, you can see that there is some space. And, you know, that was even pre-COVID. So like social distancing wasn't a thing. Like just squeeze in, make room for people. Mm-hmm. No, but people just wouldn't do it. Like they grab their space and they don't care about those others who are just going to miss the train because they don't want to like make the inconvenience of moving two steps in either direction. So I literally just stood in the door and it starts, you know, doors closing and it tries to close and it cannot close because I'm standing in there. I'm like, well, you guys make space or we're all here. Like, I'm not staying here alone. And that's what you, you, the thing is, you have to be an asshole. Exactly. No, and I don't think it's even being an asshole at that point. And instantly there was space for like five more people from the platform to come after me. Good work. You're a hero. I know. I try. Like the whole point that we were talking about earlier, it's the people that's the problem. Like, I think the systems, at least people try to design them to work as best as they can. And then you have people. That's where things like start to go downhill. Yeah. So what's happened to me is like since um, not having a car anymore, I obviously no longer have road rage because I don't drive. And I don't even think I had like, I don't think I was an angry driver, but I am an angry public transit taker. And I now have like metro rage because people just don't know how to act. And it bothers me so much. Like there are just like, I would also not say that I'm like huge on rules, like kind Mm -hmm. of a rules or whatever sort of person. But public transit, there are rules for a reason. Like, there are social rules that need to be followed. People do this thing now where when the train is crowded, like, what you're supposed to do is sit down so that there's room for other people to then stand. And I understand that you have to sit next to somebody that you don't know who's a stranger. You live in a city. Suck it up. And people won't do it. And there will be all these empty seats and then people will be standing and it's super crowded. And it's like, can you just move out of the way? Like, if you're not going to sit, at least move so someone else can sit because it's like, People are trying to go home or go see their friends or, like, whatever. No, that's so true. I mean, honestly, like, I don't think anyone in the world cares so much about personal space as much as Americans do. And correct me on that if I'm wrong. It could be one of my many strong opinions. But like, if you're taking public transit, it starts with public. Like, it's right. everybody. So your personal space, now you left that home. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's, it's like, it's such a cycle because you need people to be taking at for the most part, just take it as like a random number, but let's say like 30%, a little plus or minus is what public transportation agencies budget come from, like, you know, the fares that mm-hmm. people actually pay when and if they pay, like you said, like a lot of people are not. Yes. Right. The rest, the rest comes from federal funding, state funding, local funding, all of that sources. Right. So like 30% is a lot, um, especially when you have a good chunk of people who are not paying at all, like just evading fares. And then now you have COVID where you have people who are just not taking public transportation because they didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you just go like grocery shopping once a week or whatever. You hang mm-hmm. out every Friday or Saturday and that's it. You're not taking like the two trips every morning and every you know evening to and from work and all of that. And like this is in mass in DC. This is one of the largest remote working spots in America right now. They were barely able to operate good service. So you have to reduce service. Hence, you have to wait more for the red line now even at rush hour mm-hmm. or peak hour. Um, but then at the same time, you, that also leads to, okay, so even people who were reliant or like like to take public transit, now it's bad. So now they just opt out. So those are not people who are working from home or anything, but they're like, well, this really sucks now. So like, why am I even doing this? And you lose more people. So it's a very, very, like very vicious cycle um, that COVID has put most of those public transportation agencies into.
do you want to talk about your project in Khartoum? Oh, yeah, I can talk about it. Um, so that's actually a public transportation project that I started. Well, it kind of started around this time last year. That's when there was like a call for proposals. So the World Resource Institute is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, that does all like all kind of fun stuff. Um, and one of the one of like the flagship um, kind of um, call for proposals they had last year is this one for doing work that that relates to like technology improvements, public transportation in Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what I thought what I thought would be really cool to do is like this thing called the GTFS, which is the General Transit Speed Specifications. Now, this is to put it very simply: it's you open your Google Maps, your Apple Maps, your Transit app, whatever, whatever like trip planning tool that you use. You put your origin, your destination. It gives you all the options, right? You can walk using those routes. You can take a car using those routes, and all of that. Public transportation is an option that's pretty much available in most of the cities here and, and like the developed world. But in Africa, only 25 cities have that as an option. Are they concentrated to certain countries or regions or is yeah, it kind I mean, of spread out? If you can just think about all like the big capital cities in Africa, so Cairo, um, Accra and Ghana, Lagos in Nigeria, um, Dakar in Senegal, like just think about like the capitals, the major well-known countries um, in Africa, those have it even not all of them because if you think about it that's like 50 percent like if you right. if one city in each country that's like 50 percent of the countries so it's, it's severely lacking and part of it is because of the technical knowledge to to do it i mean the protocol is open source and you have information about it and everything but access to information is quite challenging for people and then actually just doing the actual work of like most of those systems are referred to like as semi-formal transportation or completely informal which is pretty cool informal is like the ones where people just decide that hey People from this neighborhood go a lot to this place and they like get a little minibus or whatever and they start using it. Actually, it's very interesting concept. It's like self-organized chaos. It's great. Uh, and it works very well in many parts of Africa and Southwest Asia and in South America as well. Um, in Africa, they're better known as the Matatus. Look them up. It's great. And in, um, in Sudan and many other countries, it's a semi-formal system. So government says, well, the line starts at this point, ends at this point, follows those routes. And then people with private vehicles operate in those lines. So it's there like on paper, but it's not really mapped. People like know what those routes mm-hmm. are. And you get a word of mouth that tells you, hey, Camille, if you want to go from, you know, the White House to Capitol Heights, you take this bus because it's only a bus system. There's no metro there. Mm-hmm. You take this bus and you get off at this intersection and you take the other bus and you get a word of mouth and you're good. But there is no physical like route map. So that's the project that we're doing. So we have people basically um, hopping on and off buses. Um, across all the routes and sending GPS tracks that um, we use them basically to create some GIS shape files that represent the routes. Uh, it's pretty cool. I think we did like well over, um, say, like 200, 220 routes already. And we estimate there's about 280 routes. So we're almost there. Um, so once we do that, um, we'll be able to actually generate this data protocol that feeds into Google Maps, Apple Maps and everything. And people will have access to those information like in real time through their phones, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also people will have like a baseline level of information of like what the network looks like and those are like very basic things that you don't even think about in many of the developing countries mm-hmm. it's like what does it look like and where is it serving and who is it serving and who is it not that you start working improvements on it and somewhere like Sudan like in Khartoum Khartoum has like 8 million people um, last official statistic is like 80% of them are completely transit dependent completely mm-hmm. right so if you think about it, that's like 6.4 million people so if your work just improves this service for like one or two percent of them, that's hundreds of thousands of people 
um, that you are able to to do something right. That's that's what I really like about public transit is that it really has the ability to improve the lives of a lot of people in a relatively short time, and you can see those you know you can see those improvements. So yeah, fingers crossed, uh, things work very well there. Is there a timeline for how long you're working on it for? Technically, it was supposed to end in June, but I think we're like three, four months delayed. <laughs> and, and honestly, the biggest the biggest part of the delays is just like all the bureaucracies. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to get things from America to Sudan and the other mm-hmm. way around, just because there, there have been sanctions up until like three years ago. And although the sanctions are lifted, all those institutions in between have not implemented those changes. So you start mm-hmm. working with someone, they're like, oh, it's Sudan. Uh, well, no, we're going to have to like hold your bank transfer for like three months while we verify that you're not sending it to terrorists, you know? So it's, it's, it's terrible when you think about it because, you know, you go into this like competitive process and you earn a grant fair and square, and then you have to jump through all those hoops that other people don't have to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, while trying at the same time to like maintain and keep a project alive there. Because once people hear about it, they're enthusiastic. If you pump the brakes, you lose enthusiasm, you lose people. And this is what happens way too often. So that part of it was quite stressful, just trying to manage like all the government and academic and financial institution regulations that were not tailored for this kind of work. Um, but yeah, so I think like we're, we're in good pace now. So I think we'll be, hopefully, the data collection part, I think we'll be done with it like in another month. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that would be nice. But then like a big part of what we're trying to do is kind of like um, an education entrepreneurship um, phase, which is like three, four months, basically, of, you know, hackathons and workshops of educating people of how you can use this data to develop a transit tech app. Um, that can be something that, you know, if, if public transportation is not working well, why don't you do something, a service that helps improve it? You know, just getting more people along of like understanding that here is some data that never existed that you can use now to improve the lives of people. Um, and I think that's really the main part of the project that I'm excited for. Did you say that how do so people can use a private vehicle mm-hmm. along, right? So it's like you don't have to be a like government trained approved bus driver. You can just go. You need to have like a commercial driving license and you need to have yeah. like a vehicle that's not like a four passenger vehicle. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like you so there's no so I'm saying with the data you could also use it to better regulate like how many people want to take different routes at different times like how you know what i mean like so it could just be like a random amount like there's tons of buses and nobody's ever getting on them or like bus well i guess like bus drivers probably are just doing that themselves by like seeing where people are and like when they get a lot of traction and stuff but. exactly exactly that's how they switch into different routes and all of that um and right now even if you're like doing massive gps data collections basically of location data of where people are moving you don't have the backbone of like, okay, those are just people moving, but you have no context to like, what does this network they're moving on look like? So right. you really can't, you really can't do much with it. And that's what, yeah, we, that's why we say it's like, it's a zero to one improvement. And we think that, you know, going from zero to one mathematically, it's exponentially more than anything else, right? It's just infinity. Um, then you can go from like one to gazillion and it would still be good impact. I mean, I think it'll make a massive difference, especially imagine being a visitor or like new to living in Khartoum and you're oh, like, yeah. you don't have anyone to give you the word of mouth and you're like, how, how do I get anywhere? Like, yeah, you're kind of screwed. Kind of screwed. <laughs> and the thing is, the word of mouth is like someone who took a particular route all their lives and like, right. maybe it's not the best. Like there is nothing yeah. to tell you that. I'm thinking about it because my dad is like, I don't know if your dad is like this, but my dad is like the best with directions. And but he tells directions in like a dad way, like totally relatable. He, he remembers everywhere he's ever been so clearly, but he'll he'll have the craziest like he'll be like, all right, drive until you see a blue sign, turn right, 
go down the block. There's Dale. Say hi to Dale. Make a U-turn. You're like, what? You're like, go until you see the school. You're going to go around the school. And you're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's that's a very bad thing, honestly. I think it's universal. <laughs> and I first moved to Boston. Someone was giving me the directions to their office. I was going to them. And they just casually said, yeah, well, you see the Duncan right across the street from the Duncan. You take a ride. I'm like, wait, what? What do you mean the Duncan right across the street from the Duncan? That's, that's, there's that many of them here. Did you find it, though? Oh, yeah. Literally, there's like, you know, so that people, I guess, don't have to take a Yui on the street. You have a Duncan that's right across the street from a Duncan, because why not? <laughs> have you become a Duncan convert now? Not yet. I actually feel like this is the this is the part of me that didn't really adapt to Massachusetts. So I'm like, I'm out walking in the cold with my sweatshirts and shorts, you know, it's, it's fine. Shorts? It's freezing. Yeah, but it's fine. You live with That it. is actually so American of you. Yeah, but I couldn't get on the Duncan hype yet, no. When we were planning this and we were talking about what we wanted to talk about, I offered several serious, thoughtful, you know, meaningful subjects and one that was mostly mansplaining. Um, and you picked the mansplaining. So mm-hmm. um, would you like the floor to mansplain a subject of your choice? I mean, I feel like I've been mansplaining public transportation for quite a bit. I don't think that's mansplaining if you just actually know more about something than I do. But that's that's your definition of mansplaining. I usually know something more about something than you do, and hence it's literally just every conversation we have. I feel like that's actually just a lie. You feel so. Your feelings matter, but they're not true. All right. What's your proof that you know more than me? I really have no proof. I just feel. My feelings mean more. And that's mansplaining to you. No, that's actually American law. <laughs> I don't know. Do you feel I do a good job of mansplaining? Like, do I subconsciously mansplain a lot of things? I want to say yes, because I, I want to blast you on the pod. But um, mm-hmm. I would say mostly no. I was at breakfast with these guys recently, and I didn't know them super well. They were, like, my friend's friends. And they, like, did this. They were like, oh, like, tell us tell us about, like, what it's like to be a woman. And I was like, <laughs> so you've never, like, interacted with a woman? Or... <laughs> I was like, that's cool. Like the most random question anyone's ever got. And then I, I think they think it's like cool and caring, like I'm an ally. And I was like, that's not actually as nice. Like now I'm at breakfast and I have to talk about like sexism and trauma. Like, um, And so I'm like talking about some stuff that women go through that's like not so great. And they basically were like, hey, maybe you just need to like stick up for yourself a little more. And I was like, did you just mansplain God. sexism to me? Yeah, I'm sorry. Now, see, like, I don't, I don't go that low, let's be honest here. I feel like I love that kind of, like, a little bit of a villain role in my character. You know, it's like, oh, it's the guy who always thinks that he knows better than you and he's just going to say it in your face. But I, I think that's good to be, like, that it's in your face. It's not something that I'm just, like, going back and they're like, oh, my God, did you see what Camellia thinks? She's such an idiot. Let me tell you this. I feel like I've been, well, I don't know if I would say villain, but I feel like I've been that in a lot of my friend groups, too. Although I don't know, what's your what's your perception of my general attitude? Censored to preserve Awad's reputation. Oh shit! Did I say something nice about you on record? <laughs> 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 you can cut that part. <laughs> I would tell you. Okay, I had this one friend in high school, and all my guy friends in high school were like hideously mean to me all the time, which is just you know how friendship goes. And they would just like mercilessly bully me. I would bully them back. That's kind of how it goes. Truly, like, those boys never gave me a compliment. Not once. Because it would just... 
And then one day we were like hanging out by my house. We were walking along and I was like, I saw something and I was like, oh my God, look at that. Like, that's so cute. And my friend, without thinking, he was like, you're so cute. Because he thought I was going to be like something like, oh, that's so gross. And he would be like, you're so gross. But he goes, you're so cute. And then everybody in our whole friend group just stopped. Everyone went silent. And he was like, oh my God, no, no, you're not. You're an ugly freak. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone made so much fun of him for that. They were like, remember when you said she was cute? And he was like, no, I would never. God, yeah, denial. <sighs> I don't know. They were crazy. No, I don't think I'm the villain friend, but I feel like I also have a lot of strong opinions. And sometimes I'm like, should I have less opinion? Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever stance I take, I like feel it very strongly. I-, I will say something for the sake of you know, just not necessarily like instigating, but like just starting a conversation. I just prefer that we have everything on the surface. Maybe sometimes the way I say it is too assertive, um, but it's all open for discussion. Like at least that's how I like to think about things. So I like it when people, I don't think having opinions is a bad thing at all. Like I think definitely some opinions are absolutely worthless, but they're all worth having and talking about because, you know, maybe the ones you think they're worthless, maybe they turn out to be something. Can you think of something where you had a conversation with someone who had a like really different view from you that you thought was insane and they thought yours was insane and like one of you changed your mind? Um, honestly, I can't really, I can't really pick any of those examples. Like, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like if I try to change your opinion, that means I respect you enough. Right mm-hmm. to have a conversation with you when we're like on totally polar sides of a conversation that I'm either trying to learn about your opinion or, you know, I just don't want you to look like an idiot and I want you to learn the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so like, I feel like if you already like at the level of having a conversation with someone about changing their opinion on something, your opinion could be wrong, their opinion could be wrong, but it's like just the fact of having that negotiation is a sign of respect. Like if, if you just like it, if you're like, well, this fuck it, this person's an idiot, then you move on, then I think that's that's a terrible thing, regardless of the opinion itself. But I think the negotiation itself is more of like, it reflects how much you value that other person rather than the opinion itself. So I can't like pick and choose a particular topic. Like, I feel like that's my everyday, honestly. Arguing? <laughs> Not necessarily. It's called educating. Semantics. <laughs> yeah, I agree that it's like, sometimes you'll hear someone say something dumb as hell and you're like honestly is it even worth the trouble for me to talk about this exactly exactly and i've been trying to figure that out for me because i feel like i've always like i've always had a lot of strong opinions and like never had a problem like speaking my mind but also i've definitely had a lot of like it's just not worth the trouble but i'm also trying to be like sometimes it is worth the trouble because if we all always are like that and we're like oh it's not worth the trouble to like change someone's opinion or just like in a small way be like hey you're wrong Mm -hmm. then like how will anyone learn anything yeah i mean that's fair and it's like you can't really pick and choose there right because i mean oftentimes it's i mean there are scenes there are situations where it's actually you're not trying to get you know your opinion across to that other person that you know you, you know you might get out talking to a rock but there are situations where just the act of like standing up against a particular opinion is something that can have a better, you know, it can have a better impact on someone who's just like a bystander who's seeing that, right? Because who thinks that people just don't care anymore. So there is value to that. Even if it's not like an educational lecture, like something like that, I think that there is so much impact of like social kind of like in-group, out-group sorts of behaviors instead of having to be like, oh, hey, that thing that you said, I don't agree with that. And here's why. And here's what you should know. And blah, 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 blah which sometimes like 
doesn't work as well it can mm-hmm. be like almost just as effective or even more effective to be like what that's weird just like let somebody know that like something they thought would get them like social points actually doesn't no, i think that's a really good strategy i never i've never done it that way but i feel that's a really good strategy i don't know because people do things because they they like think it's cool like um for example some person i know i'm trying to be cryptic <laughs> <laughs> somebody i know um has some friends who just like say slurs i don't know how to say it other than that they they just mm-hmm. like say slurs and i wish they freaking wouldn't um but one of my friends these people are like kind of into her and i was like girl all you need to do is be like just give them a little look and be like what and they'll never do it again mm-hmm. and like is that stupid that like oh they would change their mind for like somebody they think is hot or cool or whatever like yeah maybe but it's like Guys would. yep if it works no yeah but that's that's again like like you said it doesn't have to be confrontational like sometimes sometimes those people just did not have someone look at them weird when they something weird right and maybe that's what some people need i mean is it just a nudge maybe but yeah it's definitely like worth doing something i mean something is better than nothing well because i think there's a lot of people that not like they don't know something's wrong, but like they always got points for that or like that was always acceptable mm-hmm. wherever they learn those behaviors or wherever they learn those beliefs. I mean, like, isn't that half of like pop culture? If you look at like early 2000s, like 90% of the songs were just like discriminating against groups that are now still like following the consequences of that kind of discrimination. And it was normal, right? Like, if you think about everything that was about, like, the LGBTQ community and everything. I mean, in pop culture, people, even in movies, right? People would be cursing at each other, you know, saying, you're this, you're that, right? And and mm-hmm. it was something, and it was normal. It's like, yeah, you heard people in school say it. You know, people just grow up in that, and they don't realize the impact that it has on, on people that are not a part of their little bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of it is changing attitudes too. Like, it's, yeah, you have to be tolerant, but you also, you know, there's there's kind of like an opting in component of people realizing, well, this this was dull shit show, and maybe we should have been doing better, right? Well, that's why I'm saying like, it's not. It, people are like, oh, cancel culture, everything's so PC, blah blah blah, blah. but it's like not that. It's just like literally actions have consequences. They've always had consequences. It's not the law. It's just mm-hmm. like that's how like the social world works like that's how culture and society moves is that like people do things and then people react to that and people can reward you for what you do and say and how you act or people can i don't know what the opposite of reward is but people can basically like uh be upset with you for it and that's just like how it goes so it's not like you don't have to be quote-unquote pc like you don't have to change your attitudes but it's like yeah this is what people respond to because this is what other people believe so if you say something that they believe in and agree with they're going to reward you for that and if not they're maybe not going to buy your product or support you yeah no that's fair like i don't know people are so surprised but it's like that's progress sorry and there's no there's like no social credit that's given for people who were like who were not in the disadvantage like um you know side of side of the equation when they opt in, it's like, well, it's about time. It is about time, but I don't. I think there's also like part of like the negativity around cancel culture is that it is like it's coming from like a really high moral ground, as if you know you have not done anything wrong all your life, 
um, and people people do things wrong. And I think it, it should come more of a place of, you know, first of all, I think you cannot do things regardless if you talk about, you know, if you talk about racism, if you talk about sexism, if you talk about homophobia, if you talk about anything, the people on the, ad, like the disadvantaged side will not be able to get any progress if people from the advantaged side do not opt in. So there is no, some absolutely. kind of opting in because you, you're the one that has something to let go as someone that's coming into the other side that's been like disadvantaged. Um, and I think oftentimes like the scary thing for some of those people is that it's, it's like, oh, well, it's about fucking time, but it's never about, well, good job. And it's not like, yeah, you should give everyone a medal, but, you know, there is nothing, well, in social capital, there is something to gain for everybody when everyone's doing better. Well, only kind of. What you're saying is, like, if you're the group in power, it's like you kind of are giving up something. And, like, in the long exactly. run, if you believe in, like, the good of the world and, like, general community, then that is better for everyone. But, like, for you and your group, mm-hmm. yeah, if things are inherently unequal, you do have to give up something. Exactly, yeah. Because you have something, it's like a seesaw. Like, you just have, you know, mm-hmm. if you have all the power and some people have none of the power, and you want uh, everyone to share the power, you have to give up some power. Yeah, exactly. And now we're back at math. Well, there you go. That's how it starts. That's how it ends. <laughs> so I told you, see, you can never do this in chemistry. You'd have to draw some shit. Now we just, like, put things as equations, and you can maybe just talk about all the fun stuff already. I mean, I don't know. What else is the fun stuff? I don't know. I feel like there's you becoming um, a darts girl. Do you want to tell the story of my heroic darts victory for you? It wasn't a heroic darts victory. I had everything that I needed. I needed one dart in the bullseye. You just walked in casually, picked it up, and threw a bullseye. It happens. (laughs) No, it doesn't. But it happened to me. You know why? Raw athletic talent. That's why. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't even argue with that. So good for you. And then I heard that you started the career, you made the career of it after? Yeah, so that was my first time playing darts, like, not ever, but, like, in, I don't know, a long time, a bunch of years. And then recently, my friend and I went to a bar that had darts, and we decided to play, and um, I kind of, like, schooled her in darts. <laughs> and I was like, damn, is this who I'm going to be now, darts girl? Oh, there you go. But I'm not mad about it. What I want to learn, though, is pool. Yeah, pool, I, I, I used to play a lot of pool, I used to love it. Are you good? Yeah, it used to be, and I knew exactly where things were going. That makes sense. Math person. No, pool, pool is one of those things. Like, I got the most enthusiastic high five I ever got in my life playing pool at, like, this bar in Miami. I was visiting Miami Beach. And I just called this, like, crazy shot. And that's what I do. Like, you can think of me playing pool as exactly me having conversations. Like, I would not, like, yes, I would play, like, normal shots and, and try to win a game. But if there's, like, a dumb shot that's going to look great if it works out, I'm always going to take it. I don't really care about the consequences much. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have a big mouth before I even do it. So I would say like a solid, I have like a 10, 15% conversion rate on those, which is pretty good because like they're usually like just ridiculous shots. Yeah, so I made this call for like one crazy one where we're like hanging out at this um, sports bar in Miami. And apparently this man, like this old man was paying attention. Like someone is probably like in their 70s or something playing like two tables away from us. And I make the shots and my friends are in awe. And this man like comes running from across the sports bar. And he's like, 
kid, that was sick. And he gives me like the most enthusiastic high five I ever got in my life. I don't even know the man's name. You've reached the voicemail of Camellia. Please hang up and dial again. For listening to this episode of Pick Up the Phone, our show would not be possible without the support of our amazing team. Our executive producer is Camelia Pastor, our audio editor is Camelia Pastor, our graphic designer is Camelia Pastor, our marketing team, Camelia and Pastor, sales and analytics, Camelia Pastor, and of course, this season's intern is Camelia Pastor.